Uh, it's my uh, privilege this morning to bring the word to you. And so if you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, Matthew chapter 25. And I want to take you this morning to a parable that Jesus told. And it's a parable known as the parable of the talents. And my burden this morning in bringing you this parable is I have the burden that you see all of life in light of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is what this parable will teach us as we listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. So let's read this passage together and let's hear what our Lord would teach us. Starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to begin with the basic observation that we live in the middle of the first coming and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We live our lives in between two stages of Christ's literal coming to this earth. As Christians, we live our entire lives looking back to Christ's first coming. We celebrate all that he has accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection. But we also look forward to Christ's second coming. 
We look forward to his coming of glory, his return to rule and reign upon this earth. And we understand that while Christ's first coming was a coming of suffering, a coming of humility, a coming of sacrifice, we understand that his second coming will be a coming of glory, a coming of power, a coming of supremacy in which he will end the rebellion of this world and he will establish his rule and his reign upon this earth. We live in the middle of Christ's first coming and his second coming. Christ's second coming will be a coming of glory. Matthew 24, verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We look forward to that day. That day is the culmination of all our hopes and dreams. We long for that day. Titus 2.13 says that we wait for his, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says we wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Revelation 22, verse 20, summarizes the heart of every true believer when Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And John replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus has gone away. He has left the earth and he has gone to the right hand of the Father. But one day he is coming back. And when he returns, he will end the rebellion. And he will end the sin. And he will end the strife. He will establish his rule upon this earth. And we will dwell with him forever and forever. And I don't know about you, but the longer I live as a Christian, the more I, older I get in this world, the more I, I just long for Christ to come back. I just long for his return. Oh, that it would be today that Christ would return and that we would see him in his splendor, and his glory. The question is, how are we to live in light of Christ's second coming? How are we to live our lives in light of Christ's imminent return? And many people have come up with answers to that. Some say, well, what you need to do is sell everything that you have and go live on a mountain and just stand there and wait for Christ to come back. And others would say, well, what you need to do is quit your job and, and uh, quit your normal responsibilities and go to a monastery and, and wait there for Christ's return? Well, to answer that question, Jesus tells us this parable in Matthew 25. And this parable teaches us how Christ's servants are to live in light of his return. This parable is found at the end of the Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse is Christ's teaching on his second coming in Matthew 24 and 25. Five times in this discourse, Jesus says that no one knows the time of his return. Um, Matthew 24:36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And therefore, Jesus teaches us that we are to live our lives in readiness for the time of his coming.
for we do not know the day or the hour. How are we to be ready for Christ's second coming? Well, let's listen as Jesus teaches us this parable, beginning in verse 14. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. In verse 14, we're introduced to the main character of the story. He is simply called here a man. This is a rich man. In verse 18, he is called a master. And in verse 19, he is called the master of servants. This is a very wealthy man. And he is the main character of the story. How wealthy is he? Well, he's so wealthy that he gives one servant five talents of his property, which would be about the equivalent today of five million dollars. A huge sum of money. And in verse 23, he calls that a little thing. Just a little thing. Five million dollars, five talents. You've been faithful with just a little thing. That's how rich he is. I mean, who calls five million dollars a little thing? Only very, very rich men. Verse 14 emphasizes this master's rightful rule and authority. You'll notice in the verse that the servants are explicitly called his servants. The property he gives is his property. At no point does the property become the servant's property. It is all his. It is, he owns it all. At no point do the servants begin to own themselves. It all belongs to him. He is the master, and he owns it all. And the story goes that this master of servants goes on a journey. It appears to be a very, very long journey. Verse 19 says he's gone a long time. And before he goes on the journey, he calls the servants together and he entrusts them his property. To one he gives five talents, to another two, and to another one. I pause at this point to emphasize that these are huge sums of money he is entrusting to his servants. This isn't five cents and five dollars. This is the equivalent of five million dollars, two million dollars, one million dollars. A talent was equivalent to six thousand denarii. A denarius was a day's wage for a Roman soldier. And so these are huge sums of money that he's entrusting to the servants. And I believe that even at this early stage in the parable, we are seeing the gracious and compassionate character of the master. I mean, he could have just told them, you know, I'm going away, so pull weeds until I get back. Or do some menial labor until I get back. I mean, he owns the servants. He could do whatever with them that he wants to. But he treats them with dignity and compassion by granting to them noble service entrusting huge sums of money to them, even though he could have treated them harshly. I can remember working a summer job where all I did was copy and collate and staple. Copy and collate and staple. Every day, day after day, copy and collate and staple. And finally one day, one of the men in the office came to me and said, yeah, I want you to do the slides for a multi-million dollar sales presentation. And do you think I just, I went on, actually, no thanks. I'd rather copy, collate, and staple. 
And I was so excited. I was like a multi-million dollar. Forget these staples. I want to be part of something big. One way that you show grace is by giving people responsibility. And this master shows grace to these servants by giving to them great responsibility. Five talents, two talents, one talent. Huge sums of money. And verse 15 simply says, Then he went away. He doesn't tie them down with rules and regulations. He doesn't weigh them down with explicit procedures on what to do with the money. He trusts them. They are simply expected to steward the money that is his and use them for his purposes. You'll note here that the talents never become the servants' talents. They never are given to the servants and put in their bank account. It all still belongs to him, but they are called to steward what is his and use them for the advancement of his priorities and use them to improve upon his assets. Any profit they make with these talents will belong to the master, not to the servants. But the first two servants, you'll note in verse 16, don't seem to mind that. Verse 16 says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. The key word here is the word at once. Uh, Euthios in the Greek, it's immediately. The idea here is one of eager, willing, excited service. Uh, These first two servants, they know that they've been treated graciously. They know that they could be pulling weeds for 14 hours a day as long as he's gone. But they've been entrusted with such a great stewardship that they are excited. They know that they have received grace in this stewardship. And so eagerly and with joy and with delight, they go out and they excitedly serve the master during his absence. The spirit described in verse 16 is not mere duty, it is also devotion. They're glad to serve. They want nothing more than to see the master's assets increase. The first servant was given five talents, he makes five talents more. The second servant is given two talents, he makes two talents more. Both servants earn a 100% return on their talents. And you'll notice that although they did not earn an equal amount of profit, they are equally faithful with what they've been given. One servant was given more. Another servant was given less. But they were equally faithful with what they had been given. The first two servants are pictures of eager, joyful, devoted service to the master. And think about it. It's not... They're not profiting from this service. It's not like the master is going to take those five talents at the end and say, well, now it's your talents. They're still my talents. He's going to take the profit. But they love the master, and they want to see the master's assets increase. And so with joy, they serve the master. The first two servants are contrasted with the third servant in verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid the master's money. Now that seems like a strange thing to do with with the talent. You go out and you dig a hole and you put it in the ground. 
But in those days, that would be the equivalent of putting it in a safe deposit box. It would be the equivalent of putting it in a safe place. You'll notice here that the text doesn't say that this third servant went out and embezzled the talent. The text doesn't say that this third servant went out and stole the talent. He didn't go out and waste the talent in riotous living. That's what the prodigal son would have done, right? He would have taken the talent and just spent it all and partied with it. That's not what this third servant did. He wasn't irresponsible with the talent. In fact, he put it in a safe place. He dug a hole and put it in the ground. But what the servant did not do is he did not use the talent to improve upon the master's assets. He buried it in the ground. He hid it for safekeeping. And essentially, he acted like he didn't have it. He didn't use it for the master. Now, we'll see why he did this in a minute. But what I want you to note here is that there's a simple contrast in this story. There are three servants and a very rich master. The first two servants take what's been entrusted to them and eagerly and joyfully use it to improve upon the master's assets. The third servant takes the talent and hides it in the ground and acts like he doesn't have it. Very simple story. The story resumes in verse 19. It's been a long time. The master's been gone a long time. In fact, it may seem like he's never coming back. I mean, he gave the talents and he's taken off and we haven't heard from him. It's been a long time that the master's been on a journey, but verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. It seemed like he wasn't coming back, but he did. And when he came back, it was time to settle accounts. It's a commercial term used in verse 19. It, it's a term that means to balance the books. It's a time of reckoning. It's a time of accountability. It's a time of accountability for what these servants did with what has been entrusted to them. And for the first two servants, I'm going to emphasize this and press this point. For the first two servants, the master's return is a time of joy. It is a time of unbridled joy for the first two servants. It's not a time that they're afraid of. It's a time that they anticipate and look forward to. Look at verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your master. The first two servants serve the master with eager, willing, joyful devotion. And for them, the master's return was a time of joy. It was the culmination of all their hopes and dreams. And for them, this time of reckoning was a time of reward. And if you note this passage, the two servants were not equally fruitful, but they were equally faithful. They didn't earn the same amount of profit, but they both received the same exact words of commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What a scene. What a beautiful scene. This master is, he's not a man who's interested so much in the cash. He's not a man who's so much interested in the numbers and the profit. He's more concerned about the servant's spirit of devotion that they've demonstrated in their service. And if you look at this man, this master in this scene, this is a man of grace. This is a generous, generous man. I mean, first century lords did not talk to their slaves in this way. I mean, even today, I don't know many bosses who talk to their employees in this way. I don't know how many times in that summer job where I gave the copies and then my boss was like, well done, good and faithful copy boy. You have been faithful. All right, here's some more copies, all right? I mean, just be happy that you have a job. Just be happy that you're, you're fed. Be happy that you have an office to go to. But this master is a generous master. You get the sense here that this, he, he's interested more, not just in an employee-employer relationship, but he loves these servants. He's devoted to them. And the fact that he would lavish them with this, these words of praise, it's not that they've earned this through their service. It is that he is a gracious man and he is rewarding them according to his gracious heart. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's not rejoicing in the prophet. He's rejoicing in the servant's devotion to him during his absence. And you'll note that he rewards them first with with verbal commendation, just words of praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Even though it all belongs to him anyway, and even though their spirit should just be, we've just been unprofitable servants. We just did what we're supposed to do. He lavishes them with praise. He rewards them also with further responsibility. He says, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. You thought five talents, five million dollars was a big deal. That's just a little thing. You've shown yourself faithful, and I'm going to set you now over much. For these servants, the time after the master's return will be a time of increased responsibility. Because responsibility is one of the ways that this master shows grace. And he rewards them also with joy. Enter into the joy of your master. 
All three rewards are expressions of the master's grace, verbal commendation, further responsibility, joy. They show his kindness and his generosity. These servants love their master. Their master loves them. And for these first two servants, the master's return is a time of great joy. What about the third servant? Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Now remember this third servant. He didn't lose his talent. He didn't embezzle his talent. He just didn't use his talent. He didn't waste it in riotous living. He just stuck it in the ground. He acted like he didn't have it. And I imagine that this third servant is looking at the first two servants and he's seeing what their reward is and he's getting a little bit nervous. He's reassuring himself saying, well, at least I didn't lose it. At least I kept it safe. But he sees that the first two servants have earned a 100% return on their talents and he has nothing to show for what he's been given. Have you ever been so nervous that you just blurted out words that you shouldn't say? Have you ever been so antsy that you're in the presence of someone and you know, you're fidgeting and you just say things that, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. And they're hurtful words and they're rude words. I think that's essentially what's going on in this passage. When the master comes to settle accounts, what you would expect is a calm, reasonable explanation as to what happened with the money that's been entrusted to you. You would expect spreadsheets and flow charts and a calm, reasonable uh, explanation of the profit and the loss. It's a, a time of accounting. Instead, in verse 24, the true feelings of this third servant come out. He blurts out what is really in his heart toward the master. And what is in his heart is deep down inside this third servant, he really doesn't like his master very much at all. He doesn't like the master. He resents him. There's bitterness in his heart toward the master. You might be saying, well, why does he go out and dig it into the field? Let me just note here that he doesn't go out and put it in the ground out of an act of protection. He puts it in the ground as an act of rebellion. Because this is really what is in his heart. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Just blurts it out. I don't like you. You are hard. 
Greek word is skleros. You are a harsh man. You're unfair. You don't treat people nicely. The idea here. You're a difficult man to work for. You're mean. I don't like you very much at all. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, and you're not just hard, but you're unfair. Verse 24, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. You are a man who takes and takes and takes and takes, and you just require people to work for you, and you take all the profit, and you're unfair. That's not right. It just shows how mean you are, that you put people to work, and then you just take everything that they've given. He implies here that the master is lazy, reaping where he did not sow, gathering where he scattered no seed. He just has other people do the work, and then he takes all the profit. The third servant says, you are mean, you are unfair, you are unkind, and therefore my relationship with you is one of fear. Verse 25, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. This third servant saw himself in a no-win situation. If he goes out and he gets profit with the one talent he's been given, then the master's going to take all the money that he's made. And he doesn't want that because he doesn't like the master. If he goes out and risks the talent and loses the talent, then the master's going to punish him because the master's a hard man. And so he can't win in this situation. And so... Out of this heart of resentment and bitterness, he goes out and he buries the thing in the ground. And he comes back and he says, look, here's, you have what is yours. What do you want from me? I didn't waste, I didn't do anything wrong. Just take it. I was thinking of how bizarre this would be if this happened in real life. If I gave my money to a guy at WAMU or Chase Bank and say, here, put in a CD or put it in mutual funds or put it in stocks, and at the end of a year I came back and sat across the desk from a banker and said, well, what happened to my money? How much interest did I earn? 5%, 10%, what did I earn? And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Na, I don't like you very much. You are a mean man. You just expect me to take your money and work 40 hours a week with your money, and then you want all the profit? You're unfair, and I don't like you. What a strange, strange thing to say. And yet that's what this third servant did. He, he's so nervous, he just blurts out his true feelings. He has no spirit of devotion. He has no spirit of delight. 
And brothers and sisters, what I would point out is that the main contrast, the main contrast between the first two servants and the third servants is not that the first two servants worked harder than the third servant. You know, it takes a lot of work to find a plot of ground and do the digging and put the talent in the ground. It wasn't that the third servant wasn't willing to work. The main contrast is not that the first two servants were more disciplined than the third servant or that they had more willpower or greater commitment. No. The main difference between the first two servants and the third servant was their view of the master. It was their view of the master's character. It was that the first two servants saw the master as a man of grace and the third servant saw him as a man of law. And because the first two servants saw the master as a man of grace, their hearts were eager and willing and joyful. And it was their joy and their delight to serve the master because they knew that they had been treated far more generously than they deserved. But because the third servant saw the master as a man of law, he was resentful and bitter and angry. He chafed under the master's rule over his life. He had no devotion to the master's interests. And although he keeps his ethics clean and doesn't do anything outrageously wrong with his talent, in the end, the true state of his heart comes out and he shows that he does not love the master. If you and I were to talk to this third servant, I think we would all try to reason with him. We'd all try to tell him, your master's not a hard man. Look at him. Your master's not a mean man. Look at his heart. Look at how generous he is. Look at how good he's been to you. But the thing that separates the first two servants from the third servant is that the third servant has an inaccurate view of the master's character. He sees him to be a hard man. Now how does the master respond to this third servant? Does he commend him because he didn't lose the talent? Does he say, well, good job, at least you kept it safe? Look at verse 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. The Roman banking system was similar to ours. They could have expected to put it in the Roman bank and earn 6%, 7%, 8%. If you're not going to earn 100%, at least put it in the bank. It would be easier to put it in the bank than to dig a hole in the ground. He exposes the true 
motivations behind this third servant's actions. You wicked and slothful servant. And the story ends on a chilling note. Jesus ends his story with a clear reference to the fires of hell. Verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And verse 30 says, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In verse 30, hell is described as a place of eternal darkness. It is described as a place of unimaginable sorrow. It is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone in the Bible. He talked about hell because he didn't want people to go there. He wanted people to flee from the wrath of God and find mercy at the cross. But he ends this story with a clear reference to hell to emphasize the fact that this third servant, he is an unbeliever. The third servant represents a non-Christian. If the first two servants represent Christians, believers, those who have received the grace of the Master in salvation and who eagerly and willingly serve the Master out of a joyful heart, this third servant represents an unbeliever, one who has not received the grace of salvation, and therefore one who sees God as a lawgiver, but not as a savior. One who sees God as a hard, mean God who is out to ruin and to destroy lives, instead of as a gracious, compassionate, merciful Savior that He has revealed Himself to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story is not contrasting faithful Christians from unfaithful Christians. The story is contrasting Christians from unbelievers. Believers from those who have never received the grace of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The story teaches us that Christians, represented by the first two servants, are saved by grace. They have an understanding of the Master's gracious heart. Why? Because we have seen the Master's gracious heart on full display through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we need any proof of that, we go to the cross of Calvary where the Son of God the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the master who owns everything, willingly, graciously, humbly, gave up his life as a sacrifice for sin and died on our behalf so that we, unworthy servants, may experience the grace of the master 
and serve him with a joyful heart. No, this, te- this passage does not teach that we are saved by our service. This passage teaches that the fruit of us understanding the master's grace is a heart of willingness and joy to use all of our lives for the master's purposes because there's no greater joy in our life than to see the master's name exalted and the master's kingdom advance and the master's priorities fulfilled Because we love him, because he has been so good to us. This parable teaches that those who have not received the grace of salvation in the gospel tend to see God as a hard, hard master. And maybe they'll keep their nose clean and won't do anything outrageously evil. But deep down inside, they resent the master. Because they've never tasted of his grace. They've only seen his authority, his ownership, his rule, but they have not seen his generous spirit. For those who have not received the grace of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus teaches here that their eternal destiny is the outer darkness of hell where the wrath of God toward guilty sinners is poured out for all of eternity future without hope and without relief because they have not been covered with the blood of a Savior who is Jesus. The parable is teaching us this morning, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ is coming back. The Master has been gone a long time. 2,000 years and counting. Sometimes it seems like he's, he's just not going to come back. But he will come back. And for those of us who are covered with his grace, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, his return will be a time of joy the fulfillment of all our hopes and dreams. All of us have been given a stewardship. The stewardship that we've been given is an expression of God's grace. Like I said, we're not saved by our service. We are saved by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Yet if we have received the grace of the Master our heart's desire will be that all that he has given to us, all of our lives, and the talents, it's a broad concept. It represents all of life, not just spiritual gifts or ministry, but all of life, our health, our, our years on this earth, our possessions, our relationships, our families, our opportunities, our training, our education, even our trials and our suffering. All of that is a stewardship given to us. They are part of the talents that God has entrusted to us. 
And some of us have been given more, and some of us have been given less, but all of us have been given some. And if we have received the grace of the Master in His salvation, the fruit of that grace will be, we will long to take all of our talents, everything that God has given to us, and joyfully say, Master, I want all of it to be used for your purposes, not mine, for your name, not my name, for your priorities, not my priorities. I want it all to be given to you and by your grace use it for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. We want to use all that we have to improve upon the master's assets, not our assets. To fulfill his priorities, not our priorities. The key to whether you and I will be faithful stewards in this life or unfaithful ones is not who can work the hardest, it's not who can be the most disciplined, it's not who has the strongest willpower. It is, how do you view the Master's character? When you look at Jesus Christ, do you see Him as a man of law or as a man of grace? Can you honestly take stock of all your life this morning? Can you look at it all right here and right now and look at all your possessions, all your relationships, everything that God has given to you now. And can you honestly say in your heart, Jesus Christ has been so gracious to me. He is a kind master. He is more gracious to me than I deserve. Because all I deserve is hell. Or brothers and sisters, can I ask you this morning, when you look at your life this morning, right here, right now, when you look at what God has given to you, do you see Jesus Christ as having treated you unfairly? Do you see him as a man of law? Are you saying in your heart, you're a hard man? You're hard to serve. I'll keep my nose clean, but I don't really like you very much. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. But you've been harsh with me. And I live my life in fear that Jesus is out to get me if I do something wrong. Brothers and sisters, I studied this uh, parable this week and the Holy Spirit convicted me of two things. Number one, there were areas of my life that I was holding back from God. There are areas of my life that I had not surrendered to Him. That I was still saying, mine, mine, mine. 
there were talents that he had given to me where I didn't want to use them for his purposes. I wanted to use them for my purposes. And the Holy Spirit was convicting me that the reason why I had these areas of my heart that were not fully surrendered to Jesus Christ was because I didn't really understand his grace. That I still saw him as a boss who just wanted me to do things. I didn't understand his gracious heart toward me. If I did, the love of Christ would compel me to surrender these things to Christ because there's no greater joy than to live in submission to his lordship. The Spirit also convicted me that while oftentimes I serve God, I did not serve him with joy. While I ministered much in his name, inside my heart, oftentimes there was a grumbling spirit which said, this service is so hard. It's so hard to serve Jesus. Jesus is a hard master. And again, the Spirit was convicting me that this was, I didn't understand who Jesus was that I needed to come back to the gospel and what he had done for me. And behold, what a kind and generous master he is. Brothers and sisters, hasn't Jesus been so kind to us? I ask you from this passage, is not Jesus Christ a gracious master? Hasn't he been abundantly kind and generous to each and every one of our lives? Has he not saved us from the fires of hell? Has he not given his very own life to pay for the penalty that we deserved? Has he not blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Has he not adopted us and called us not just to be lowly servants, but to be sons of God in Jesus Christ? Has he not abundantly cared for us and supplied all of our needs and been with us in every trial, every step of our lives? Has he not met us? and been faithful? And will he not continue to be faithful to us? Is he not? Can we look at all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will continue to do? And can any of us conclude that this is an unfair man of law? Oh, brothers, sisters, he is a man of grace. With fresh eyes, Come and see the gracious heart of your Savior. Behold the cross. See what he has accomplished for you. And I end by saying this. 
Brothers and sisters, sin is a hard, hard master. Sin is an unyielding Lord that will ruin your life, that will abuse you, and that will destroy you. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. I will give you rest. I am gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. How much better it is to live under the gracious lordship of our master. Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer together and close our time. As we close our time together, I believe the Holy Spirit would want to make application to each and every one of our hearts this morning. I want to give you a moment to respond to his prompting. If he wants to change your life through this passage, by faith, would you respond to him? Jesus, thank you for being our gracious master. We are unprofitable servants. At the end of the day, we can only say we've done only what we're supposed to do. And yet, you have not only saved us by your grace, you've given us a stewardship by your grace. By grace, you bear fruit in our weak and feeble efforts to to serve you. And by grace, you will one day reward us. Not because we've earned anything, but simply because you love us. You are our kind master. And we love you. Lord, we long for that day when you will return. We long for that day when we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Take us to be with yourself. Establish your rule and reign upon this earth. End the rebellion, end the sin. Bring us into fullness of joy. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time. Jesus said, Surely I am coming soon. And our hearts rejoice and say, Come, Lord Jesus. Our Lord, as we go from here, 
May your Holy Spirit, who has been our teacher during this hour, continue to impress these words upon our hearts. May he continue to preach where human words cease. And we eagerly look forward to Christ's return. We thank you for this time and give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.